Well, let's turn to First Timothy. <coughs> the last time that we looked into this letter that Paul wrote Timothy, it's been a few weeks ago now, we looked at how the church should honor its elders. And then we also saw how Timothy... Paul told Timothy to be very careful about how he delegates authority in the church. So, honor to the elders. But prior to that, we saw how the church should honor widows who are widows indeed. And today, we want to look at another group of people in the early church, the slaves, and how they should honor their masters. So, just this subject of honor comes up uh, over and over in this section we've been looking at. At least we want to begin to look at this subject of slaves and masters. Um, it's a very controversial section, and it has been used wrongly to say that the Bible condones slavery. So we want to spend some time analyzing that accusation. But before we get into that, we have some unfinished business from Chapter 5 that... Uh, we skipped the last time I spoke, and that is that little verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So I just want to spend a little time on that. Um, it's an interesting verse for a number of reasons. Uh, it's one example that shows that even though God was inspiring Paul to write scripture for all the church for all time, we should not forget that this also was a personal letter, a personal letter to one particular believer in one particular culture in the first century. He wasn't writing this to everybody, this verse. He was writing to Timothy. No longer drink wine exclusively, but use a little wine. Drink No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Well, I say that this was to a particular believer in a particular culture, and one thing that apparently uh, was the case was that the drinking water in that region of the world was often not that good, sometimes contaminated. And it would have contributed to Timothy's already weak health. So Paul lovingly advises him to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. This scripture should not be used to promote the consumption of alcohol in general because it was basically a medicinal use of alcohol. He was drinking this for his stomach's sake. But it does show us that the idea of total abstinence that is, staying away from all alcoholic beverages, is not a scriptural absolute. If it was, Paul wouldn't have said this to Timothy. It also shows us that certain that using certain products for their medicinal benefit is not unscriptural. Uh, you know, people get, get, off, get off into all kinds of strange ideas, and one of them is, well, I don't need to use any of that stuff. God can just take care of me all those medications. Well, you could 
I suppose you could say the same the same thing about food if you want to do. God can just keep me alive, but nobody takes that position. <laughs> so it does also show us that using certain products for their medicinal benefit is not unscriptural. There is no virtue in neglecting or contempting or having a contempt of the body if it can be helped by available products or procedures. Uh, God's provided those things for us. This is what Matthew Henry says. It is the will of God that people should take all due care of their bodies so that they be made most fit and helpful to us in the service of God. Take care of your body so you can serve God better is basically what he's saying and that's why Paul was telling Timothy no longer drink wa water exclusively but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It may be that Paul actually felt like he needed to put in this little exhortation to Timothy related to the use of wine because of all the emphasis on asceticism and severe treatment of the body that was being circulated by the false teachers of that time. You'd have to go back and remember some of the things we've talked about here in the past related to what was going on there at Ephesus. Uh, just a emphasis on, uh, a wrong emphasis on uh, abstaining from certain foods and marriage and things like that. So th that may have been part of the reason Paul was saying this to Timothy. Timothy may have been tempted to think that it was more spiritual for him not to use any wine because of the type of false teaching that was circulating at the time. But Paul advocates a little wine for his physical health. Of course, we must factor in the rest of the scripture teaching on the use of intoxicating drink when we start thinking about this subject of wine. <clears throat> we know for sure that uh, the Bible says that wine is a mocker. Wine's a mocker. It'll fool you and make, and make a fool of you. Anyone using it must be very cautious lest he be fooled by it. And it's good to note that he says use a little wine. He's not talking about drinking a, a bunch of wine. He's talking about a little wine. That might be helpful to him. But we know from many scriptures that drunkenness is clearly condemned as a sin throughout the scriptures. So there's lots of things we could factor in here, bring in uh, the area of causing a brother to stumble. There's many areas that come into play when you start thinking about the use of uh, alcoholic beverages. The uh, idea of self-abasement and severe treatment of the body is also something we need to be very careful about. So we just want God, you know, f in each of our individual situations to keep us from unscriptural extremes and what we advocate and what we avoid. I can say this, that this is certainly not a vo verse to say that everyone should use wine. This was written to Timothy. Timothy's particular situation of polluted water, stomach problems, the lack of all medicines that could help his condition, lack of other medicines that could help his condition. Uh, all those situations are probably not ones that we find ourselves in today. So this was not this is not the verse to go to to determine whether you should drink wine or not. 
Well, that's a, a very brief look at this subject, but I didn't want to just totally leave that verse out as we go through here. But we need to go on to this subject of slavery. So let me read the verses that we're dealing with today. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God in our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits of our believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. Well, uh, we want to just begin to examine these scriptures and related scriptures related to this subject of slavery. Uh, this morning. Actually, the, that verse that we just looked at related to uh, drinking wine uh, is kind of a good lead-in to the subject of slavery. Well, you might say, what's that got to do with slavery? Well, it's a good lead-in because it shows us that often we must be aware of the cultural setting of Bible verses to understand and apply them correctly. Mm. I'm going to repeat that. Often, we must be aware of the cultural setting of Bible verses to understand and apply them correctly. The first thing I would say is that this teaching here in 1 Timothy is not an isolated teaching in the New Testament. Paul taught on this subject often and for good reason. Many slaves embraced Christianity in the first century. Uh, there's some estimates that even, even higher than 50% of the New Testament church was slaves. So there's no, it shouldn't be any wonder that Paul would have some very clear and important teaching for those uh, members of that, the early church. We can say this, there must have been something very appealing to a slave about the message of forgiveness and freedom in Christ. But Paul saw that he needed to make some clarification on some things about slavery uh, for those slaves who had become Christians. So that's, that's why this section is in here. And I want to look at some of the other examples of New, Te of New Testament teaching on, on slaves or to slaves. So let's turn to Titus. We won't have time to look at all these this morning. There's very many of them, but Titus is a, a good one. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may, be, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. I think you learn a little bit here about some of the things that were manifestations or man manifested by the slaves in their situation. Uh, they sometimes were argumentative. They also sometimes pilfered. That means steal. Uh, a lot of times they just didn't show good faith. They weren't trustworthy. 
uh, in the situations they were in. So Paul hits on those things. Uh, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this, will, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And then Colossians. These are all similar verses, but they bring out different aspects of what Paul was teaching at that time. Colossians 3.22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your master on earth, not with external service as those merely ple pleasing men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. We'll read on down to 25. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as... For the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Isn't that an amazing thing? You're a slave to, to a, a man, but he says not, things are different now for you. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Um, and then, well, we better go on down to uh, chapter 4. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. And just one more. This wasn't just Paul that taught this. Let's turn to First Peter. Two eighteen. First Peter 2.18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for, if for the sake of conscience toward God, man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So, obviously he's saying that there's going to be some unjust treatment to some of these uh, Christians who uh, some of these slaves who had become Christian so I read those and there, there would be more we could read more actually the New Testament clearly had much to say about this master-slave relationship <clears throat> and I'll say again by taking these scriptures out of their broader biblical and historical context people who want to speak disparagingly of Christianity and even some Christians sadly have tried to paint Christianity as pro-slavery I mean just if you just took these verses that we looked at just now you, can, you would come up with some type of uh, 
idea that Christianity condones slavery. Well, what, they, what you do, or what people do, is that they choose to ignore many important aspects of Christian teaching and also many important historical facts, and they come up with this idea that Christianity is pro-slavery. So I wanted to take some time on this subject this morning. Actually, we won't deal directly with the verses that we're looking at here in First Timothy. Hopefully the next time I speak we'll get more, uh, we'll dig in more to these verses in particular. But I just felt like it's worth trying to get the big picture on this subject of slavery, especially since I know I'm speaking to some students uh, that will be facing objections to Christianity as they are in school or in college or just in the day and age which we live, it's everywhere because atheism and the militant attitude against Christianity is everywhere. So it's good to you know know how to answer some of these things. And one of the big objections is, well, Christianity teaches slavery. So we want to look at it uh, in its broader context uh, and historical context. So I want to give some, a little bit of historical information. That's why I put the map up here. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that happens when we read a verse, these verses, like we've just read, in our mind, if we are Americans, if we have been raised here in the United States, we are very familiar with slavery as it was conducted in the United States, and I'll be talking about that some, so I wanted to, just to get some terms in your mind here. I'm, I'm going to be talking about new, new world slavery. So if you're talking about new world slavery, this is one advantage of this thing. I can move around a little bit. We're talking about the, the slaves that were brought over from Africa over to North and South America. This, this was the new world, at least Columbus thought it was. Uh, so when you're talking about New World slavery, we're talking about the slavery that was taking place in these areas here, North and South America and the Caribbean, after 1492. I mean, it wasn't, this was not a New World to the Native Americans that lived here, but for the Europeans coming over, it was a New World. So we'll be talking about that. And then we'll also be talking about slavery in the ancient Near East, that's the biblical world. The ancient Near East would be this area here, uh, down into Egypt, up around, uh, you know, all the area around Israel, Turkey, and on over to oh, areas like what are Iraq and Iran today. So if we're talking about ancient Near East, we'd be talking about approximately uh, 3000 B.C. to 500 B.C. in this area here. So it's just kind of good to get those areas and time frames in your mind because I'll be using those terms and I just thought uh, I don't want you to be uh, missing what I'm talking about here. So, like I said, because we're so familiar with slavery as it was conducted in the uh, United States, especially prior to the Civil War, we tend to think that this is the model of what slavery must have been when it's mentioned in the Bible. 
but forced violent enslavement according to race, especially black slavery, is not what the Bible is speaking about. When it talks about slavery, you got to, you know, switch gears and not think just of black slavery when you, when we're talking about slavery uh, in the Bible. Um, so I want to just look at the Old Testament historical situation first. Now, I I don't want to lose you here. Uh, I'm going to give a lot of hi- historical information, but like I said, e- even in relationship to the wine thing, if you don't understand the historical situations, sometimes you won't understand the verses. They just there's there's things that are really helpful if you see what the biblical writer was speaking into. And I I hope to show that here as we go on. Well, so some of the background here of slavery as it was spoken about in the Old Testament or in the ancient Near East. First of all, we need to realize it was practiced everywhere. It was common in every empire, nation, whatever the situation was, there was slavery. But it was not all the kind of slavery that we think about when we think about uh, American slavery. Often, this type of slavery, the slavery mentioned, came about as a means of economic relief of poverty. Because of this, slavery was sometimes initiated by the person who became the slave, not by the owner. Now, we just don't even think about that. But uh, conditions were deplorable as far as having enough food to eat uh, in the ancient world. And people actually sold themselves into slavery just in order to to stay alive. there were many what you might call debt slaves who sold, sold themselves into sl- slavery just to stay alive. In one sense, you could almost say that this was a semi-voluntary slavery. Slavery was a better option than starving to death. So you could say it was voluntary, but it's not really voluntary the way we would think of it. It's semi-voluntary. To be sure, there were many other ways slavery came about in the ancient ancient world. Some people were born into slavery. Some slaves were prisoners of war. Some were condemned criminals. Some were children who were sold into slavery by their parents to pay debt. Some slaves were abandoned infants. You remember we've talked about how infanticide was common. Babies that they didn't want, they'd just leave them out. There's actually certain places that we could just leave your unwanted child in in the ancient world. Uh, I mean, we we you, you got to put yourself back in a different, totally different cultural s- setting to try to understand some of these verses that we're going to look at. Uh, unwanted children were left exposed to die. Sometimes they were picked up by people who would raise them and use them as slaves. On top of all this. There were people who were kidnapped and made slaves. So much slavery was very gruesome and inhuman with a person being treated as property with no legal recourse 
against any kind of abuse. So you have some that's not so bad, some of these debt slaves, uh, some that was terrible. So you can't just, it's not just one type of slavery that we're talking about. If we, if we compare the Old Testament laws concerning slaves with those of the surrounding cultures of the ancient Near East, you find that the Hebrews had a clear concept of the humanity of the slave and better laws concerning the treatment of the slaves. Now what that means to me is that God was beginning to regulate an existing social reality that was almost universal in the ancient world. God was beginning to teach people the right attitude towards a fellow human in a situation where things were often quite inhuman. God was beginning, just, just like he begins with each one of us in our young age teaching, having our parents teach us the ABCs, God was beginning to teach these people that he called out, the Hebrew people, that there's a better way to, to treat these, uh, your fellow humans. So he was beginning to regulate an existing social reality that was universal. Let me give you just two examples of this Old Testament movement in the direction of human freedom. So a couple of examples. Let's go to Exodus 21:16. Exodus 21:16 And he who kidnaps a man whether he sells him or he is found in his possession shall surely be put to death. Now that's an incredible scripture. If you kidnap a man or woman whether he sells him or he is found in his possession that person shall surely, the person that did the kidnapping, shall surely be put to death. This verse alone, just that one verse, would have prevented much of new world slavery. Now think of, again, what we're talking about here. We're talking in new world slavery. Where I'm reading a verse from over here at uh, about 1500 B.C., but that verse way back then would have prevented most all of the slave, slavery that those slaves were kidnapped, brought to the coast, picked up and taken over on slave ships. Terrible, terrible situation. Die, half of them dying on the way over, over and sold as slaves. But kidnapping was wrong. Man-stealing was wrong. Slave-trading was wrong. And God said that way back in the Old Testament. It says a lot clearer in the New. We'll see that next time. So just that one verse um, would have prevented much of the slavery that was practiced in America, North and South America. I think it's interesting to note just a little historical side note here that the slave traffic was often outlawed before slavery itself. People, people realize that this thing of kidnapping a person and using them as a slave was wrong. So they outlawed the slave trade before they outlawed slavery. For instance, in uh, 
in England and the United States, the slave trade was abolished around 1807 or 1808, but slavery itself was not abolished in England until 1833 and in the United States in 1865. But they outlawed the slave trade first. That was clearly, clearly something uh, that they saw was wrong. So that's one verse, just that one verse, Exodus 21:16. But here's another amazing verse in Deuteronomy 23 <coughs> and verses 15 and 16. Deuteronomy 23:15 and 16. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose, in one of your towns, where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. So here's, a, here's an amazing verse. If a slave runs away, comes to you, you don't return him. You take care of him. Isn't that amazing? Well, you know, you say, well, that doesn't seem so amazing. Well, I'll tell you one thing. It was amazing back then. It was incredible. This is usually taught, uh, thought of as being a foreign slave who runs away from his master in another land and comes to Israel. And that would be significant enough because the other nations did not handle runaway slaves that way. They would usually uh, take them in as slaves for themselves. But it's also possible that this passage refers to any slave that runs away, whether from a Hebrew master or a foreign master. See, you see what I'm saying here? Well, not just foreign slaves that might, you know, come into Israel, but Hebrew uh, slaves that uh, were from wherever. If that is the case, that's truly a revolutionary verse would have the effect of virtually turning slavery into a somewhat voluntary institution. If you chose to stay with your master, you, you were there. If, you're, if you could run away, get away, you weren't a slave anymore. Slaves who were so dissatisfied with their slavery that they would, would run away were not to be returned to their master, whom they felt had mistreated them. Now, actually, because many slaves among the Hebrews were debt slaves, they would not run away because they would lose their means of livelihood. Besides this, uh, at least for the Hebrew slaves, there was a time release clause for them. Now, think about this. You're a, you're a Hebrew slave. This is true for the Hebrew slaves. There was a time release clause. It was called the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they re released all the slaves. And if you missed that one, there's another one called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, they let all the slaves go. So um, this, is a t this is different, you see. This is, if you read what was going on in the rest of the Near East, ancient Near East, this was not the case. God was beginning to show his people something about 
slavery and the wrongness of, of that institution. Now, I have to say that there are many other stipulations in the Jewish law which make the Old Testament view of slavery very complicated. I don't want to present just a one-sided view here. I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture of Old Testament slavery. There are certainly some very difficult passages. Let's look at one of them. Leviticus 25. Verses 44 through 46. Twenty-five, forty-four. As for your male and female slaves whom you have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourner who live as aliens among you that you may gain acquisition and out of their families who are with you whom you have whom they will have produced in your land, they also may become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you to receive as a possession. You can use them as permanent slaves, but in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. So he's making a distinction here between slaves that were from other lands and uh, those who had become slaves in, in uh, amongst the Hebrews. And this is a hard verse because he talks about uh, them becoming your possession. And you can use them as permanent slaves. So what are we to think about this? Well, we're to think that God was dealing with an existing system and bringing some regulation to it, but it's not certainly not where it, we would want it to be in terms of our morality today. But God was beginning a work here. And let me just show how, for instance, uh, you have to read this passage in light of some other passages in the Old Testament to get it more of a feel for what was going on. So uh, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Keep in mind what we just read. And verses 17 through 19. Deuteronomy ten seventeen. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So, show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. In other words, he's teaching his people to have compassion, even for the alien. And the slave might be a, uh, from an alien land, but you still should have that attitude, that basic attitude. Remember, you were slaves in a foreign land, and you need to show love and concern. 
So you have to balance some of these very difficult passages out. Uh, it, a passage like this one in Deuteronomy should have lessened the severity of treatment that these foreign slaves experienced. <coughs> Let's look at uh, one more difficult passage. And I, uh, admittedly, these are not easy passages to deal with. I'm just trying to help us to see that you have to put them in the historical context to understand them properly. So Exodus 21 and verse 20. You know, in dealing with these difficult passages, uh, you have you have a choice when you read it. You can just say, well, that doesn't sound so good. I don't know why it was like that, and just go on reading. Or you can do some investigation to try to get some answers. So I'm trying to show you that it's good to be able to see these things in their historical context because it does help sometimes to realize what's what the situation was. Exodus 21, verse 20. And if a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. Now, that's, that's a difficult verse, calling that uh, slave his property and uh, realizing that often these slaves were beaten. What are we to th think of this? Well, let me just, in general, I, I would say this. I think the right way to view verses like these is that they were regulations of a universally existing system, not an active endorsement by God meant to encourage or condone slavery. It still doesn't make it uh, a verse that's not difficult. But again, God was working in a people that he had called out of paganism. They all practiced this policy. Uh, so here's some things to consider as we think about this verse here in Exodus 21, which allowed the beating of a slave but not the killing of the slave. Uh, there's no question that this sounds bad to the modern, by, by modern standards, but this passage was not written as a modern standard. It was not written for today. It was written more than 3,000 years ago in a totally different cultural setting, and when it was writ written, God was regulating an existing system that was very barbaric. Although it may not seem like an advancement when looked at from our perspective, it was an improvement over what many of the nations of the ancient Near East, how they treated their slaves. They not only could beat their slaves, they could kill their slaves with no legal ramifications. In fact, this was still the case up until the time of the Roman Empire in the Roman Empire, in New Testament times. Roman slaves could be beaten to death for even trivial matters or unintentional violations. But you see, God, through the Mosaic Law, was moving his people beyond this. By demanding that if a slave was beaten to death, whoever did the beating should be punished, God was showing a different attitude. You should have a different attitude than what was prevalent around 
uh, all around in the surrounding culture. Now, we're not told definitively what, punish what the punishment would be, but in other cases in the Old Testament, it was life for life. If you took a life, you paid with your life. And that, that actually comes up right after this section here uh, in verse 23. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint it as a penalty, life for life. So it's very possible that this person that beat a slave to death would forfeit their life. God saying that this is not right to do that. Uh, we also see from the section that follows that any permanently injured slave was to be set free. We won't read it right now, but you can read that in verse uh, 23 through uh, 27. So if you permanently injured a slave, you knocked his eye out or something, they were to be set free. Well, that, these are laws that were not the case in the uh, countries around that surrounded Israel. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we see that slaves were allowed to rest on the Sabbath, all slaves, and that uh, these were great advancements in the treatment of slaves from what was the case around them. Another thing to consider is that many of these slaves that were being spoken about here as far as uh, being beaten, these were foreign slaves who would have been prisoners of war very often. They were members of wicked nations that God had Israel attack because of their immorality or because of their hatred of the Jews, of the God's people. These captives who were now slaves probably retained their hatred of the Jews and sometimes could only be kept in line through physical punishment. Even in our day, prisoners of war are often made to work, and if they violate the rules, they are punished. Now today, in more advanced, uh, civilized, or humane societies, the punishment would, might be something like solitary confinement, but there still is a punishment. So those are just a couple of difficult verses which I've tried to just give a little historical setting so you see what God was doing. He was drawing us, drawing God's people, drawing his people away from the practices of uh, extreme uh, cruelty that existed around them. So, and we read these verses in the Old Testament, are these 3,000-year-old rules about slavery what God wants us for us today? Well, you know, of course, you know the answer to that. Uh, they're not, but they were a movement in the right direction in that time and place. And as we shall see as we continue on this subject next time, Christ and his apostles present, presented such radical teaching that eventually the whole institution of slavery was abolished. It was because of Christianity. Slavery was ultimately seen to be incompatible with the gospel of Christ. So that's the, the, the really wonderful stuff is what's coming next week. <laughs> or next time I speak, I should say. Uh, 
I had this as all one message, but it got way too long. So I had to split it up. So I'm kind of taking the Old Testament, New Testament. But you don't get the joy and wonder of, of the gospel by just reading the, the accounts in the Old Testament. Christ came to set us free from the slavery of sin. But when he does that, you see, when he sets a person free from the slavery of sin, then selfishness is replaced by love for God and love for others. That's what the gospel does. And if you replace in a person's heart selfishness with love, it's going to change how you view your slaves, if you have any. What happens is actually in the New Testament, the axe is laid to the root of all oppression, including slavery. I like the line from that Christmas song, O Holy Night, where it says, Truly he taught us, that is Christ, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's the reality of what happens when the gospel comes. Where the gospel goes, freedom comes. And we'll see that more next time. One other way, and I didn't, we didn't look it up, uh, that a Hebrew slave was set free was by redemption. If a near kinsman would pay the ransom price, that slave was set free. It's a, it's a tremendous picture, you see, of what Christ does for us who are in s- slaves to sin. He sets us free, makes us slaves of righteousness. Isn't that an amazing transformation you you were a slave to sin but there was a redeemer that bought paid the price and brings you to himself then you become a slave of righteousness we're told that's in Romans chapter 6 well uh, I know this has been a lot of history and uh, things that in one sense, aren't that most the most edifying, but I think it's good to get a, just a little feel for uh, how some of these verses fit into the the culture of the time. It helps us understand why um, things were the way they were amongst the Jewish people. Some of these commandments and laws, um, but. To put it in a better light, I thought we could just close with this song, I Will Sing of My Redeemer, uh, because that's, that's where the real answer to slavery comes. When you're redeemed, uh, your heart is changed, and you find out how to view God and man in a loving perspective. So let's, uh, I'll get this map out of the way, and Sing, I think it's, uh, I think it's one in the red book, I hope. But uh, since we don't have the red books, we'll bring the screen down. I will sing of my Redeemer. <laughs>